Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. In this episode, coming out on the eve of the opening ceremonies, we're focusing on the Olympic Summer Games in Rio. In the kick, we will talk about Rule 40, which forbids athletes and their non-Olympic sponsors from even acknowledging each other during the Summer Games. We also have the return of Sarah Atar, who was the first female Saudi Arabian runner to represent that country in the 2012 Games. In London, she ran the 800 meters, but in Rio, she's upping her game. But first, reporter Kit Fox talks with Alexi Papas, whose own Olympic buildup has been anything but ordinary. Alexi runs the 10,000 meters, but she's also a poet and a writer and a screenwriter and an actor and a filmmaker and one of the most dynamic and interesting young athletes in the sport today. She also talks about why, as a Greek-American, it's so important to her to represent Greece in the Summer Games. As a Greek athlete, I'll be the first woman to ever compete in the 10,000 meters in the Olympics. You know, I met young athletes there, some women in particular, who had never seen someone with such a strong back, they said. And I think to be a role model there is a gift, and it's a privilege that I'm like, really taking on. Then I speak with journalist David Epstein to demystify the doping situation around the Rio Games. After what appeared to be a state-sponsored doping program in Russia, it wasn't even clear when we recorded this interview which individual athletes from Russia would be allowed to compete in Rio. David also talks about recent innovations in drug testing, how clean these Rio Games really are likely to be, and what keeps him watching his favorite sport, even still, despite all the doping controversies. If you asked me before all this, you know, do you think one person on every medal stand is doping? I would have said yes, and that means two aren't, you know? I think there's some, there's sort of some positive there. It was a really thought-provoking conversation, and it really changed the way I will be watching these Olympic Games. I'm sure it will do the same for you too. So let's get to the show. Thanks for joining us. Alexi Pappas has spent her Olympic buildup logging 90 to 100 miles per week. But the 26-year-old University of Oregon grad also found time to do improv comedy, compose poetry, and write screenplays. In fact, Alexi co-wrote and starred in the feature-length film Tracktown, which premiered at the L.A. Film Festival in June and at the U.S. Olympic Track Trials in Eugene, Oregon, where the movie was shot. In it, Alexi played a familiar but not entirely autobiographical role, that of an elite runner named Plum Marigold, who is laser-focused on qualifying for the Olympics. She also co-directed the film with her then-boyfriend, Jeremy Teicher. The couple is now engaged. Despite all her competing interests, Alexi, a dual citizen of Greece and the United States, has been training hard to represent Greece in the 10,000 meters. With a PR of 31 minutes and 46 seconds, which is almost two minutes off the Olympic record, she would be a very unlikely medal contender. But in a conversation with reporter Kit Fox, Alexi talks about what a big year 2016 has already been for her, what it means to compete for the country where the modern Olympics were born, and the Greek phrase that she hopes propels her to an amazing race. So you've launched your first uh, feature-length film that you've co-wrote and starred in this year. You're going to be competing in the Olympics, and now... As of very recently, you got engaged. So I guess I'd say this has like been a relatively decent year for you. This has been a great year, and you know, being, in, <laughs> I think my engagement with Jeremy has been a long time. You know, he's he's a keeper, and it's really cool to be now formally engaged. And for us, you know, our relationship isn't just about one event, and he was really conscious about not wanting to propose at a film festival or at the Olympic Games, as electric as those events are, be but rather have it be more about us and about how we'll have adventures ahead and our relationship is not tied to one of these events or one of these goals, but more tied to us as a team. And so I really appreciated that, um, that it happened sort of in transit, that we were the, 
the thing that was connected and not not like an event or a, an accomplishment, even though we love working together and are very proud of the things that we do. Congrats, obviously, to both of you. The latest thing that you two have worked on is your movie Track Town, which just had its premiere in Eugene as well as um, at the LA Film Festival. So would you mind just giving us like a, a brief synopsis of what the movie is about? Yes. So Track Town is a narrative feature film and it's fictional but based on my experiences as an elite runner and is about a girl who has just graduated college and has lived her whole life in Eugene, Oregon in Track Town laser focused on running and in the days between her Olympic trials, prelims and finals is forced to take a day off, a rest day, and at a loss for what to do, she wanders around Eugene and meets a bakery boy and gets distracted by him. And so, of course, you co-wrote along with Jeremy and starred in the film. So, like, how did you balance all your elite level training with, you know, basically making a feature length film? The balance between the running and the filmmaking has always been, you know, a challenge, but also kind of a a pleasure. Um, When we were writing and developing Track Town, casting, funding, all of those steps leading up to production, uh, my time was split between training full-time, running 90 to 100 miles a week, and working with Jeremy during the times when I wasn't running. So my time every day was definitely for the running, towards the running first. So practice and naps took priority time-wise. But during those times in between, I would work with Jeremy. And then When we shot the actual film, we timed it around my one month off of running in between seasons, which was really great because I wanted to be a fully committed actor and director while we were shooting Track Town, and I knew I couldn't balance that with the running. How much of this is autobiographical versus, you know, fiction? The story is completely fictional. I would say that Plum feels like a real person to me, though she's not based on... And Plum is... Plum Plum is the main character. The uh, famous Eugene runner. Exactly. And she's, you know, she's someone who could exist. And we crafted her based on, you know, experiences and observations. And and so she's not any one person, not myself or anyone I know, but she's sort of a, like a collage of all of these experiences and people and the reason why Jeremy and I wanted to make it make track town is that we love telling stories um that are in these highly specific worlds that we are immerse ourselves in and right now that's the running world for me you know you mentioned looking at this highly specified world of elite running a lot a lot of people who are listening are runners themselves but like what's the difference what are some of these experiences that you highlight in the film that an elite runner including yourself goes through that are that are shown in the script one funny scene is when plum has to leave like a basically a date situation situation to go nap in her altitude tent and I think the the male interest is what, like... What, what is an altitude tent? Oh, an altitude tent. When I'm not in Mammoth, I sleep in an altitude tent. And it's sort of this bubble that deprives you of oxygen so that when you're sleeping, your body is adapting. And uh, they have this theory of like sleep high, train low. And so in Eugene, I sleep in an altitude tent and plum sleeps in the same altitude tent that I sleep in in real life. <laughs> Does it make you feel like you're, like, camping uh, at all? Yeah, there's a romantic element to it. You know, Jeremy and I strung some Christmas lights on ours, so it's definitely, like, we've made it a part of the fabric of our house, and, uh, you know, I've hung, like, a, a little bandana on it, but uh, it's definitely a tent in a house. <laughs> So, you know, you did, along with um, a lot of amazing cameos and, um, you know, working in a lot of your fellow elite runners, you worked with some some pretty great actors as well in Andy Buckley of The Office fame and Rachel Dratch from SNL. 
I really just want to listen in right now and give our readers a sense of what that was like. Let's listen to the clip right now, and then you can kind of tell us what's going on. Sweet, I know you're worried about tomorrow's race, but listen. Do you know what the kernels are? What, Dad? Untapped potential. I have so many 10th graders, 11th graders on my team that could be great if they chose, but it's only 24 hours in a day. You know what the, ah, the burnt ones are. Burnouts, overtrainers. Okay. Right? But this one, plummy. Oh. You know what this one is? This is you, Plum. Perfect. Ready. Prime curl. So the scene that we just heard is the night before Plum's Olympic trials prelim race. And her dad, who's played by Andy Buckley, is, you know, so well-intentioned as all of our coaches, parents, and support networks are before these big, you know, races, no matter what race, if it's the Olympic trials or our first marathon. And he just is not saying all the right things uh, to Plum. And I think it's endearing how hard he's trying. And it's also, uh, you know, it's, you can see the tension building up for her and how much this race So Plum is not her. having any of the popcorn metaphor? I think Plum and the popcorn metaphor are, are completely, uh, you know, missing each other in the, it's like a, a softball that she is, she's missing. Did you approach being on screen and being in a scene like you do at a big meet? Like, are there similarities between elite racing and acting? Yes. And I love this question because one of the things I was so nervous about was how do you warm up for a scene? Like, how do you become the character Plum? And it was so cool. I got the chance to work with this amazing acting coach and um you know, role model Joan Darling. And she taught me that you can warm up for an acting scene just like an athlete would warm up for a race. And that was so comforting to know that, you know, when we warm up for a race, there are these little routines that we rely on. We have our, our special stretches or our little special pre-race meals or little things that put us in the zone, no matter what the temperature is on race day or the other factors that we can't control. There was actually a specific technique that she taught me that I, I think is so cool and it's called sense memory and what it is. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you a little bit about it? Oh yes, please. Um, <laughs> so she taught me this technique called sense memory, which what it is, is let's say you're in a scene where the character plum is really nervous and Joni told me, you know, you don't have to recall like a whole scenario in your life where you were really nervous. Like, like for me, it might be before a track race. I could think of a specific race where I was very nervous. And she was like, you don't have to do that. But rather think of one element of that race that you remember. And for me, it was like at an indoor track meet, I can distinctly recall the kind of metal railing around an indoor track is one that I've like can recall like holding on to and nervously playing with as I watch a race that's going off before mine. And she was like, that's all you need. And so before the scene behind my back, I sort of feel this like metal bar in my hand and that's enough to kind of get you in that place where the character might be nervous. And I thought that that was such a special, one, connection between my acting and my running, and two, a way to warm up for a scene in a way that reminds me of warming up for a race. So I want to talk about your European travels, but taking a step back, so you're going to be competing for the uh, Greek team, of course. How did this kind of whole journey to the 2016 Olympics start for you? I think my Olympic journey really started when I moved a year ago from events, from being a steeplechaser to being a 10K runner, which really only happened, you know, a, a year and a half ago. I ran my first 10K 
just a year ago. And that's when I realized that I could compete at a higher level and run these Olympic standard times and and be potentially on the world stage. And I always knew that I was eligible to be, you know, by birth, a dual, I'm dual citizen, Greek American. And when I started to explore the 10K more, I also started to explore what that opportunity of running for Greece would really mean. And I had this great discussion with my dad about my goals. And it's been really important every once in a while to check in with with myself and with him about like, what's really important to me. And as a runner, I want to run the fastest that I can and get the most out of my body and compete on the highest stage. But I also really value reaching an audience and making the sport, you know, bringing something new and positive to the sport. And as a Greek athlete, I'll be the first woman to ever compete in the 10,000 meters in the Olympics and just being a strong female athletic presence there is something that is impactful. It's like, you know, I met young athletes there, some women in particular who had never seen someone with such a strong back, they said. And I think to be a role model there is a gift and it's a privilege that I'm like really taking on. And so I think I'm excited about continuing to have a presence here in the U.S. Like I I live and train in Eugene, Oregon, and I love being here. But to extend that reach outward is like really amazing. You're a dual citizen by way of your grandmother, correct? Can you can you talk about does she currently live in Greece? My yaya. Like what is your yeah. So she lives in the United States now, but she grew up in Greece. And it's been so cool to see how this has kind of like deepened my connection with her because there is a big generational gap between my, you know, Yaya and myself where it's hard sometimes to like, what do we talk about? And now there's this connection that we have that she knows is is through her and it's really enriched our relationship and it's kind of like felt very reviving to her I think to be connected back to her country through her granddaughter. And did you uh, know any Greek beforehand? Did your yaya teach you some phrases? How is your (laughs) Greek right now? My Greek is a lot better than it was before I went. Um, I think I had a basic basic understanding and a deep familiarity with hearing it but going there and training with just Greek athletes these I trained with this these 19 and 21 year old boys and it was really important that I learn on the go and so I picked up what was actually most useful and that that felt like the right thing was you know I don't know every grammar detail of Greek but I do know how to say all right, this rep is going to be uh, a little faster or like I need to slow down or where's the, where is lunch and things that like you actually <laughs> yeah, need, so, so, you know? <laughs> um, so I'm able what, to get by and, uh, and it's, it was really fun to actually learn from my teammates rather than just from a book. The other thing I wanted to ask for, uh, for your fans over here who want to, want to like cheer for you, but in Greek, how would we say, like, come on, Alexi, or or great run, Alexi? The way that people can cheer for me in Greece is just to say Pame Alada or Pame Alexi. Pame means let's go. And Pame was Pame a really... Pame Alexi? Yeah, Pame. And, you know, that was another word. Oh, Pame with Pame, a P. Pame, okay. like P-A-M-E. And that was a really special phrase, too, because my one training partner, Marcos, he would you know, really support me in trying to get quicker. And he would run like strides next to me, like sprints. And he would just whisper like, pame, 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 pame. And there was this like beat about it that like I've like put into my muscle memory where there's this like, pame, pame, pame. And it's helped me uh, in races and it's helped me stay calm just to, just to think about that word, Pame. 
So, so where were you running? I know it was at high altitude. What part of Greece were you in and what was the scenery like? Yeah, so we were training in a place called Carpenisi, Greece, which is a few hours outside of Athens up in the mountains. And it reminded me of Eugene in many ways because it was filled with trees and hills and, you know, the landscape was a pleasure to wake up in every day. And we had a routine there where we would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the exact same time and together every day. And we practiced at the same time every day. And one of the most interesting things was actually that Marcos and Yorgos and Tina were the athletes I was training with. We're used to training at night because a lot of athletes there train at night to avoid the heat. And I I asked if we might try training in the morning because I'm used to doing my primary sessions when I first wake up. And they'd never heard of doing that, but they were willing to try it. And it was you know, that was just one of the things, there were things that I learned from them and that they learned from me. But I think that that adjustment of doing the hard session in the morning was actually a really positive thing for everyone to try, even though the first day was a little rough for our 19-year-old friend. And obviously, you're, you're back in Mammoth now. Um, you know, you've mentioned before, part of the reason that you're in there is A, the high altitude, but also all these former and past Olympians that you're running with. So what is training like out there and kind of who are you working with and running with? Training in Mammoth is really, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite things in the world, honestly. And I'm training with Andrew Castor's group, the Mammoth Track Club. So it's it's coached by Andrew Castor and Dina Castor is here, who's my my biggest mentor in the sport and, and a close friend now. And all of the athletes here, there are a few that are visiting just like myself. Another marathoner, Kuhn, is preparing to run in the marathon in Rio for Belgium. And it's just so special to be here. And this trip has been the most special of them all because my coach, Ian Dobson, who used to train with Dina in Mammoth, is actually here with me for the first time. And it feels like it's coming full circle where he prepared for his Olympics training in Mammoth, and now I'm preparing for my first Olympics training in Mammoth on the same, you know, grueling trails that he ran on. And so it feels very, like, emotionally like motivating and also obviously very physically challenging and good. All the training you've done, what are your goals going into Rio? My goals going into Rio are to toe the line, optimistic and ready, feeling energized and like anything is possible. And I want to get the most out of my body out there. So I think that just means committing and and when when the when the gun goes off believing that I belong in there and mixing it up and also knowing that the race isn't over until it's over because so many times I watch an inspiring race video from Shalane Flanagan when she meddled in the 10k and it it didn't happen until the last two laps so I know that that's you know it's possible for things to happen very late in the race you know, with Greece having such a tie to the Olympics and you being the first female 10K runner for this country, I mean, what does that feel like? What is their fan support like? Like, you have a lot of fans over here. Now you have this other country behind you. What is that like? It feels amazing to be a part of this tradition of, of athletics and Olympic games that started in Greece. Um, I'll enter the stadium first with the Greek team, which is I'm, I know at the opening ceremonies is going to feel like a total, uh, you know, amazing thing. But also what I found when I went to Greece was that people in Greece really deeply care about athletics. Um, like the first night I was there, I spent the whole, I had traveled 24 hours, spent the whole day uh, finalizing some, like, uh, you know, athletic uh, identification and things that I needed to take care of logistically. And I just needed to go for a run, like a 20-minute run that I, I hadn't run in two days. And I was with a family friend, and we pulled over 
to this like restaurant on the water where there was a path nearby and there was a valet parking and I was like oh no 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 we don't need to do valet parking just for this shakeout like it's not a big deal and he was like oh no let me just talk to the guy and he talked to this uh man outside the restaurant and said I have an athlete here and she's you know training for Rio and she just needs to go for a short run and the man was like park right here and it was right out front and he was totally excited about having an athlete there and I realized that (laughs) it's a small country but there's a lot of pride and support for athletics there and I'm I'm really honored to be representing uh the country in Rio and and you actually got to obviously run inside of the Olympic Stadium in Athens. What was that like? You know, I've been to the Olympic Stadium before, but since visiting, I, you know, committed to running for Greece. And I also was able to talk to Dina Castor about her experience finishing the Athens, you know, her Olympic marathon in the stadium. And she felt so emotional about what it felt like to finish there that when I was there, I felt kind of like that, those goosebumps of like, there's so much history here, like your role model and also your family and also the whole Olympic Games, the whole modern Olympic Games started here. And so there was like an excitement about being able to be just a little tiny additional pebble in that castle, if you will. You can watch Alexi Pappas make Olympic history when she runs the 10,000 meters for Greece next Friday, that's August 12th, at 10.10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. For Kit Fox's full interview with Alexi, where she talks more about the advice she's been getting from former Olympians like Dina Castor, check out our episode page at runnersworld.com audio. Next up is a fascinating conversation with author and investigative reporter David Epstein an expert on doping in sports. You don't want to miss what he has to say about the unbelievable Russian doping scandal, but why it won't keep him from watching Olympic track and field. Stick around. Well, the Summer Olympics are here again. The opening ceremonies begin on Friday, August 5th, and... We here at Runner's World are very excited, although we're also kind of scratching our heads over a bunch of things. We have Zika to think about. There are infrastructure delays and problems. There are polluted waters. There are security concerns. And of course, these are the Olympics, so unfortunately, we have doping. And holy cow, do we have doping. In fact, we have what my guest David Epstein calls, quote, the biggest doping scandal in Olympic history, end of quote. David is an investigative reporter at ProPublica and the author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance, which was originally published in 2013. Last year, in a joint effort between ProPublica and the BBC, David reported on allegations of drug rule violations at the Nike Oregon Project, which is coached by Alberto Salazar. Epstein is himself a runner, and in fact, a pretty good one. He ran the 800 meters when he was at Columbia University and was part of a relay team that set a school record. That scandal that David called the worst in history refers to an apparently state-sponsored doping program in Russia that, for a period of time, looked like it was going to get the entire country banned from these summer games. Instead, it set off a cascade of other controversies and decisions made by international governing bodies that are mind-boggling, to say the least. In our conversation, two of those organizations come up. One is the IOC, and that stands for the International Olympic Committee, which is essentially the governing body of the Olympic Games. And the other is WADA, or W-A-D-A, which stands for the World Anti-Doping Agency, which, according to their own definition, promotes, coordinates, and monitors at the international level the fight against doping in sports in all its forms. Later in the conversation, David also alludes to the WWE, which stands for the World Wrestling Entertainment, essentially the professional wrestling league that some of you may remember as the WWF. It's also important to know that we recorded this conversation with David Epstein on Friday, July 29th, 
a week before the opening ceremonies were to begin and a full two weeks before the track and field events would begin in Rio. That means between now and whenever it is that you are listening to this episode, the facts definitely will have changed. As of this moment, more than 100 Russian athletes have been banned from competition in Rio, including 67 of the 68 members of the country's track and field delegation. So why does this matter? Well, if you look at the past five Summer Olympics, dating back to 1996, so this is after the breakup of the Soviet Union, Russian athletes have won a total of 79 medals. So their presence or their absence is absolutely a game changer for all the other athletes, including, of course, American athletes. I began our conversation by asking David to explain the timeline of this latest scandal. In the beginning in Russia actually went back to about 2010, where um, Vitaly and Yulia Stepanov, this is an 800-meter runner in, in Russia, and her husband, who was um, working in sports in Russia, started providing information, basically, to governing bodies about uh, athletes being forced to dope if they wanted to be on the national team in Russia, basically being told, um, you, can, you can dope or you can not be on the national team. And that started sort of a cascade of events, uh, both inside the media and eventually after the media with, with investigators at the World Anti-Doping Agency um, that led to a discovery, I think, of a, uh, a doping program that was so elaborate and so ubiquitous that post-East Germany, nobody really thought not only that it, it existed, something that involved a ministry of sport, the government, the coaches, the athletes, the anti-doping laboratory, the secret police, but that it, that it could have really been pulled off because you needed so many people to be in on it. So I think it's, um, in many ways, the most important scandal in doping history that we're looking at right now. And, and it's almost like something out of a Bond movie, right? Based on what I have read and heard about it, there, there again, allegedly, there was a KGB agent who got his hands on the vials of either urine or blood that were submitted by athletes that were passed through a hole in a wall. And then yeah. he would somehow um, corrupt these samples, either replace them with something else or add something else to them and, and was using some kind of alcohol or you know booze to sort of <laughs> mask yeah. Some of um, the drugs that they believed were already in those samples, and then putting the the little stoppers back on the vials, passing it back through the wall. Uh, it, it's the kind of thing that sounds like it should never be able to happen. It, it you know, if you wrote it into a script, it probably would be rejected as sounding impossible or far fetched. Yet it sounds like that's exactly what was happening. Exactly. I mean, to to say it sounded impossible, I was talking to the the individual who was at Watt and who, who led this investigation, actually, who had spent most of his career investigating international drug cartels, who said had he sat down and brainstormed what he thought were probably the worst possible doping violations, he wouldn't have envisioned this, this kind of coordination, basically. I mean, the Russian system seems to have been using all the old tricks, um, you know, things that, that uh, Lance Armstrong and the, and the U.S. Postal Cycling Team taught us about, which was like going into the mountains, um, lying about where you were on your whereabouts requirements, which are these forms that athletes fill out to say where they're going to be so they can be tested by surprise. Um, you know, using sort of subterfuge to, to make it, to, to avoid the testers when they show up, as well as sort of these new things like a hole in the wall um, in the testing lab, which is just unbelievable. I mean, the mouse hole that they called it, this sort of crude method of if all else fails, you literally smuggle the test sample through a hole in the wall of the lab and replace it. So uh, this kind of coordination just required every single level of sport up to government in Russia. And I just, I just think it's hard for people to believe that there was still the capability to do something like that and to cover it up for so long. Right. And another effect of these disclosures was that for anybody who may have still believed that Olympic sport was clean, that this seems to have wiped out any uh, misconceptions about that. Where do we stand right now with athlete eligibility for Rio, especially with Russian athletes, but also with athletes from other countries who've been implicated in other controversies, including Kenya? Right. Well, Russia's in sort of a different situation because of this 
prospect of a whole country ban from all sports that the IOC uh, was considering. And, and what they decided to do was to ban Russian track and field or, or to uphold IAAF's, again, the governing body for track and field, their decision to ban track and field athletes uh, from Russia with the exception of, you know, if they could prove they were clean. So they've allowed one athlete, Daria Klashina, the long jumper, because she was training in the United States. But beyond that, the IOC decided not to ban Russia as a country. Um, the IOC passed the buck for this decision, which wasn't really their buck to pass. It was meant to stop with them, this decision of whether Russia should be banned as a country. Basically, this decision of there's, no, there's really nothing worse you could do in doping, so do they get the worst penalty that the rules allow, which is banning a country? And obviously the decision was, uh, no, they don't. We're going to pass it to the, each international sports federation and allow them to decide. Um, and that's really the IOC decision, IOC's decision to make. So I don't think the international federations will look and say, like, well, IOC said, you know, we don't have to ban the Russians, so we will. And they don't have time to really do anything about it. So as of now, we'll see one Russian track and field athlete. In the other sports, it's basically up to the sports to decide. And I expect the vast majority or maybe all of them to allow Russian athletes. Um, and beyond that, no other country, even though there are other countries that are uh, having problems. So you mentioned Kenya. Kenya was found to be non-compliant with the World Anti-Doping Code, uh, which means that they could be banned as a country from the Olympics. But actually, people don't really know it, but there are other countries that have been non-compliant for a long time or going in and out like Spain and things like that. There's just no attention on it. Um, and so I don't expect to see them banned as a country. And in the investigations of Kenya, there's been no evidence of this, of like a state-sponsored, coordinated um, doping program the way there was for Russia. Right. As you said, Yulia Stepanova was one of the whistleblowers initially. The main whistleblower, yeah. yeah. And the, the issue with her was that she also had been busted doping in her career. Yep. So yep. even though she was a whistleblower and helped sort of bring all this down, and a lot of people thought and probably still think that she should be allowed to compete because she was a whistleblower. The issue is that she also was a proven doper at some point in the past. So she will not be allowed to compete in Rio. And she's an 800-meter runner. That's right, unless they reverse their decision. So she served a ban. She served her full ban, did not ask for a ban reduction. So like Tyson Gay, for example, um, you know, the American sprinter, for providing assistance was given a reduced ban. Um, and came back to compete, his assistance, you know, Yulia Stepanova basically exposed the biggest doping scandal in Olympic history, didn't ask for a reduction of her ban. As part of her cooperation, it admitted to all of the doping she had done over a matter of years. Um, the one thing she did ask for was the chance to compete as a clean athlete. You know, she's had to leave everything. Her and her husband have had to flee Russia. They're hiding out in the United States now. Um, and the WADA code has been updated over the years to allow investigations to um, solicit information and, and to cooperate in the way that criminal law investigations work. And so I think the people who are running the investigations view the IOC's ruling not to allow Yulia Stepanova as like basically the, the end of whistleblower investigations because they took away any incentive that the investigators have to work with whistleblowers now. Yeah. So what's your take? Do you think Stepanova should be allowed to compete in Rio? Uh, I, I do think she should be allowed to compete. I don't think it's anybody's perfect scenario to have someone who's been caught doping competing, but she served her ban, um, and I think on balance she's made a larger contribution to an attempt to have clean sport than, than possibly anybody in the history of the Olympics. So as far as the rest of the Russian Olympic team, it is up to the individual sport federations to decide whether any individual Russian athlete will be allowed to compete. So the Federation right. for Water Polo or Fencing, for example, right. will be allowed to say yes or no, this Russian fencer or water polo player will or will not be allowed to compete in Rio. Is that right? Right. And, and it actually gets even more confusing. <laughs> so the additionally, the IOC has said, well, so the basis they've used for keeping Yulia Stepanova out, just as an example of what can happen with other athletes, is to say, OK, our decision, we're not going to ban Russia, but we're going to sort of take this half measure 
and say athletes who have been previously suspended for doping are also barred from Rio, even if they served their suspension already. IOC knows full well that that issue has been adjudicated by the Court of Arbitration for Sport and that that is not allowed. And if the athletes challenge it, they will win, but there's not that much time left for that to be done. And so basically, you know, in talking to, to sources with WADA and other governing bodies, they feel that the IOC made this ruling explicitly to keep Yulia Stepanova out of the Olympics while allowing all the other international federations to keep their athletes in. Wow. Mind-boggling. And again, we are talking with about two weeks to go before the Olympics, and here we are. We don't even know which athletes are going to be there, which means yeah. that athletes from other countries in those sports don't know who they're going to be competing yeah. against. It, it's ne- mind-boggling. Never mind. Never mind us not knowing who's going to be in the Olympics. The International Olympic Committee doesn't know who's going to be in the Olympics because they decided not to make a decision on that. Wow. Another very confusing piece of this puzzle is is testing itself. Yeah. Some countries belong to federations that have drug testing. Some countries belong to federations that do not have testing. Those federations that test, some of them have very strong testing programs and others have weak and or corrupt testing programs. What is the state of testing right now? What are some of the innovations that have uh, come forward in the past few years that have have changed the way that um, athletes are doping and perhaps increasingly being caught? The passport is by far the biggest innovation. And so like when I was writing about Lance Armstrong, for example, when he made his comeback, and he was posting online his um, biological passport being in, uh, this technique by which instead of detecting a drug in the system directly or the metabolites of that drug, you take lots of blood tests over time and you create a profile that shows fluctuations of other blood parameters, like how many red blood cells somebody has. And instead of detecting the drug directly, you can say these fluctuations are so abnormal the drug must have been here. And so while no one single test is positive, you can tell if someone was doping. And in Armstrong's case, to show he was clean in his comeback, he posted all of these tests showing, look, I didn't fail any of these tests. And I looked at those and I was like, that is the signature exactly of what the biological passport is looking for, the way yeah. that his, his blood parameters are changing, where, for example, when he re-injected, presumably re-injected blood, his body stopped producing new red blood cells. You can see that sort of shut down. And that's been a huge jump forward in detection. In fact, I learned recently that investigators uh, at WADA actually had recorded conversations um, where athletes and coaches in Russia were talking about evading tests and were actually, uh, you know, and they had other messages as well. And, And they were actually saying in some of them that the biological passport was presenting a problem for them. They were working on figuring ways around it but the passport is some of the reason that they had to employ these really crude methods of like sneaking tests out of the lab um, because effectively athletes were getting caught. And so I think that's been a huge leap forward. Not that it's unbeatable by any stretch of the imagination because in order to not catch clean athletes, you always have to leave a huge buffer zone for dirty athletes to slip through. But it's a huge step forward. So the the fact that there are athletes out there doping is now obviously taken as a, as a given, but it has real-world consequences. It, it affects other athletes. It affects the people who finish, you know, second, third, and perhaps more importantly, finish fourth in international competitions and, yeah. and off the medal stand. Uh, and athletes like Alicia Montano have talked about this. You, you, even if someone is shown to be a doper and their medal is stripped away, you can never give Alicia Montano that moment back where she would have been on the medal stand at an international competition. It's it's not the same when somebody mails it to you, uh, you know, with, with a note explaining what has happened. These these athletes aren't, you know, Alyssa Montano isn't, hasn't been pursuing her dream because she couldn't do something else, right? Most of these kinds of athletes are putting off the things that the rest of us are getting onto in life so that they can pursue Olympic dreams. Uh, it's, and so I think it's, it's worth thinking about them and what they lose. And if you, you ca- if you think sport has any meaning beyond like the WWE, you know, in, in, I've asked myself this question, like, why do I report on doping? And I read some philosophy about it. And there's this philosopher named Bernard Suits who spent some time trying to figure out what's the common theme to all sports, basically, if you can sum it up in a phrase. And he came up with 
the voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles, which I kind of loved. And I think all the meaning of sport simply emanates from agreed upon rules. It's the ultimate human contrivance. Take agreed upon rules, add meaning. And if you're circumventing those obstacles that you voluntarily accepted, then to me, you're WWE. You're not what I think of as track and field. And someone can call me like, you know, whatever, earnest and geeky or whatever because of that. But, you know, I, I, I think that's a fair argument. And I think that the rights of clean athletes um, are important. Okay, so just to recap, Alicia Montano finished fifth in the 2012 Olympic final of the 800 meters. But two of the women who were on the podium at those games were Russian athletes who then were busted for doping. And Alicia had similar heartbreak at the World Championships. Both in 2011 and in 2013, she finished fourth, so just off the podium. But in both of those competitions, she also finished behind Russian athletes who now face lifetime bans from the sport for doping. I, I just think it's important to try to humanize this stuff as much as possible and, and not only think of it in these abstract um, international legal terms and talking about testing and regulations and decisions of governing bodies when sometimes when it comes right down to it, we, we are talking about people and their dreams and what is right and wrong. I, I completely agree. And I actually think even compared to, you know, in some of the athletes that are more famous in the U.S. in basketball and football and things like that, they have a lot of pressure because their, you know, talk radio is always on their back all the time and and they're under a lot of scrutiny and all that. But in some ways, I think they have less pressure than someone um, like Alyssa Montano because they're most people, she's had multiple chances because she's been good for a long time. She's a six-time U.S. national champion. But most of these athletes have one shot, and they put in this incredible amount of work for one shot, and most of them will go home disappointed, no matter if that shot was at the Olympic trials or what it was. And so that pressure is all from themselves of having put in several years of saying, were these years of my life that I'll never get back and where I did the best that I think I could, this is this race is a referendum on me, my decision to do this, to take away from other things, from family, from career, and also to see if I'm worthwhile at what I've chosen to do. Um, and so I think there's, you know, even for the people who say, ah, let's just allow it, they should at least respect where someone like Alicia Montano is coming from when they make the decision to not want to have to dope and, and to do it their own way and, and at least feel some sympathy for someone like her. So as someone who is passionate about the sport and as a journalist who has covered it and reported on doping as thoroughly as you have, how do you feel about the Olympics? How do you, how do you feel when you're, you're on your couch watching it at night at home? Are you able to enjoy it? Are you, are you able to reconcile the things you love about the sport with the things that you know to be true? That's a really hard question. I'm curious in your answer to that as well, but um, I do think about that a lot. And let me give one sort of semi-positive, like backhand compliment note here, which is that now that there's been a lot of biological passport data both leaked, you know, in, in the media, as well as some studies have, have come out, uh, some scientific studies, one of the neat things about passport is you can actually see which athletes are probably doping, but didn't you know, it didn't rise to the level of them getting sanctioned because it wasn't certain enough, but you can be pretty sure they're probably doping. And so having, we've now had a look at thousands of those kinds of tests in track and field. And what they've shown is that there's a lot of doping, but that Russia was way ahead of any other country. You know, if you're looking at the people who weren't positive, but are probably doping way ahead, everything else is a distant, distant second. And it looked like probably somewhere around a third of medalists in track and field were doping, which is horrible, horrible. But if you ask me before all this, you know, do you think one person on every medal stand is doping? I would have said yes, and that means two aren't, you know? I think there's some, there's sort of mm -hmm. some positive there. It, it didn't, seeing all these numbers actually didn't change very much what my intuition was about the proportion of athletes who were doping. Um, you know, and I, I think that's important and, and nothing is comparing to like the United States. We've had, we've had plenty of our own doping scandals. What's going on with Kenya isn't good. At the same time, 
a ton of those positives have been for nandrolone, which suggests to me that it's like the silliest doping operation in history because that's the easiest drug to test for right. that I know of in all of doping, basically. Um, so I think there are some positives too, and I think people should stop and ask and say, we're being confronted with these incredibly egregious details. At the same time, overall, aside from Russia, has it changed the proportion of athletes that I think were probably doping? And I think a lot of people would say that it really, really hasn't. And, and I hope there really are two clean athletes on most medal stands um, on average. So it definitely changes the way I watch the sport. And, and, it, and, you know, when you see a race, I mean, there was a race in London, a women's final where some of the competitors came off and, you know, there were, there were winners. This is the women's 1500, you know, now retroactively there have been some sanctions, but you know, you see winners come out of nowhere who like haven't been competing at the top level the rest of the year and they win. And some of the athletes came through the mix zone where the media wait after the race and are saying like, what do you want me to say? Like, I don't want to go impugning other athletes, but I don't know what to say. Like, I can't say like, hey, we all gave it our best. Congratulations to them. And so that's, that's disappointing. You have that feeling when you, when you see things you don't believe on the track. At the same time, I, I managed to find, um, some enjoyment of it. And, and in some ways it's caused me to keep up a little bit more with some of the athletes I follow's PRs. And I get excited when they do their, you know, their personal bests and, and, and my enjoyment a little less hinges on whether they, um, win the gold medal. Yeah. I am hopeful just, just as you are. And I think, and, and I can't base this on anything specific. I think that the Rio Olympics may be cleaner than some Olympics in the past, given everything that's going on. Do you think that that might be true? You know, I, I was in Russia recently, and I, I really enjoyed the Russian people and had you know respect for cities, things like that. So I don't want to seem like I'm beating up on Russia or anything. But the games will be cleaner because a lot of Russian athletes won't be there, without a mm -hmm. doubt, for sure, just starting from that. And, you know, and, and because of other media investigations and other in investigations and the biological passport, yeah, I think there's going to be there's going to be a lot of dirty athletes, but I do think there's a case to be made that it's going to be um, cleaner in the past, well, not clean. And 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 one thing I'd like to add to this too is I think it's it's painful to go through this, but when you get to this stage, you have to. You know, if you if you don't care about clean sport, then fine. Like you don't need to engage in this conversation, and you don't care, so don't worry about it, and don't read about it, and whatever. But if you do, then we have to go through it. I mean, think of the, the like. Most people, did you watch the Super Bowl Yeah. this year? Did you know that the MVP of the Super Bowl had served a doping sanction that reportedly involved him conspiring with a urine collector who was starstruck by him to, you know, skirt a drug test? No, I had that, not That was the MVP of the Super Bowl? That's right. Nobody knows that. Right. Because NFL fans don't care. And NFL reporters don't care. And so this crisis in Olympic sports and track and field to me suggests that People in the sport, the athletes and the people, the enthusiasts for it care, which means we have to go through this. I've heard people argue that we should essentially throw in the towel and just accept that doping is part of sport. And in fact, we should just legalize performance enhancing drugs and looking a little further ahead into issues of genetics and gender and perhaps even um, technology and, and the and this is controversial, but the supposed advantage that uh, some Blade Runners may get in running events. Mm -hmm. We should just open it all up, and whoever wins, wins. We should let people take whatever drugs they think might help them. We should let them use whatever technological advantage they think they can get. We shouldn't get caught up in whether they're men or women or somewhere in between on the continuum. What do you think about that? I think those are tough questions. I've seen some intelligent arguments made about allowing anything to go, particularly by um, Andy Maya, a professor in Scotland, who has said, well, look, all these other things are extensions of human creativity, and so we should allow them and embrace them in that way. Um, you know, so if we can, like, crossbreed a human with a cheetah, like, we should embrace that as part of human... Like, literally, right. I'm not making up that example. Right. Um, the cover of one of his books is, like, a human crossed with a cheetah. But he makes it in a very intelligent way... I don't agree with that. Um, you know, there are... So first of all, this whenever it's like, ah, oh, let's just make all this stuff legal. I'm like, the, some of these things are illegal by the laws of the countries that are involved in competing. So it's not up to sports bodies to say, oh, well, this is legal if it's illegal in the country. So part of, part of the rules are just standardizing what's allowed because of 
laws that ban things in countries. And this idea that it would be a level playing field if everybody doped is like the biggest bunch of, you never hear anybody apply that like to financial managers, right? They're not, well, they're all cheating. So, you know, let's just let it go. It just seems that, that people feel like it's annoying to hear about in sports. And it's, it's totally not true, by the way. So in, this, in the, the Russian operation, for example, they specifically wanted to get athletes who were previously clean so they could see where they were when they were clean and say, wow, you know, this person's not superhuman, but they're pretty good and we can dope the heck out of them. It, it's, there was some, a couple people who came out in cycling too that said they would do that in cycling where they would look for people who had a lower red blood cell count, but were pretty good instead of people who were really good, but were already sort of physiologically maximized. So they would preferentially pick people who they thought would have a higher response to doping. Not only that, but everyone responds to drugs in a different way anyway, as anyone who's taken like Tylenol knows. Um, so those arguments, I think, fall apart pretty quickly. And again, I think if, if we want to say sports are WWE, then fine. I'm fine with that. Like, I think it's fine that WWE exists and a ton of people love it. I'm not super into it. You know, I, I, I think there's something else to be had. I think it's really easy for people to say, to make a relativist argument. Like, you know, I wrote about in the last chapter of my book, this Finnish cross-country skier won seven Olympic medals who had a gene mutation that effectively caused him to be as if he was doped with EPO, but naturally. And so I got a lot of into discussions with people saying, well, if that's allowed, well, then why isn't allowed to do the same thing with drugs? Mm -hmm. And you can, for anything that involves human-created rules, you can make a relativist argument. But my feeling about sports is that it's meant to standardize the rules, not to standardize the genetics, or else we would just have identical twins competing against each other, and that's the only thing that we would do. But that's, to me, implicitly not what we've said we'd want. You know, I, I really think we should have these very open conversations about what it is we actually want to get out of sports, and that will guide how much we care about uh, all these issues and how we should enforce them. Right. So I assume you will be watching the Olympics, yeah? Yeah, I will be. I will be. What, what are you excited about watching in particular? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm always excited to watch the 800 just because it was my event. And, you know, like anyone, I marvel at, at how good the competitors are and, and, you know, watching David Rudisha and things like that. Um, but more than in the past, it's kind of athletes whose stories I've followed. And not, not like in the NBC's going to, like, give me the sort of heartstring tugging 30-second thing about an athlete I've never heard of, but sort of athletes like, um, you know, Kate Grace, who won the 800 meters uh, for women at the Olympic trials. Again, it's an event I like. She was a, a college runner in my same conference. Um, you know, I think she's, I think she's cool. And I, I, I like the stuff she does on social media. And she was really good as a runner. She wouldn't have gone continued post-collegiately, but had like never really won anything important at all until she won the U.S. Olympic trials. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of things, I'm, I'm really, um, you know, it doesn't matter to me if she wins the gold medal. I'm, I'm really excited to see her uh, have a chance to compete. Well, David Epstein, what a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for all your insights and thank you for joining us on the Runner's World Show. It's always a pleasure. I'm a subscriber, so, you know, anytime. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Good to talk to you, David. You too. David Epstein and I also talked about the prevalence of doping among non-elites. For that clip, go to runnersworld.com audio. After the break, we learn about a rule that's silencing athletes at the Olympics, the return of the first female Saudi Arabian runner to the Summer Games, and a beer mile record that just keeps getting broken. And now it's time for The Kick with editors Brian Dalek and Sarah Lorge Butler. Okay, for The Kick, let's start off with something that kind of took over Twitter and social media last week. It's about Rule 40, Olympic athletes, and kind of their involvement with Rule 40 heading into the Games. We know a lot about it because we follow Olympic athletes and track and field runners on Twitter and everywhere. But it kind of blew up last week. So for people who don't know anything about what Rule 40 is or, or how it's you know, involved in the Olympics... Just what's a quick explainer on that, Sarah? Rule 40 is a policy that the IOC puts out that limits what non-Olympic sponsors can say during the Olympic period. They're trying to protect the investment of their Olympic sponsors who pay a lot of money. Yeah, it's like not just 
a couple million dollars. It's millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars. And I didn't realize this, but there's no signage in the Olympic venues. Mm -hmm. So really, the IOC makes money only, you know, by these like by these partnerships. So it's a big investment by these companies. So you can see it on the one side that you have to protect these people who are paying so much money into the games. But on the other side, you know, you have a lot of runners who are sponsored by these different brands and companies and they they have no like promotional leg during this entire month period where there's a blackout with Rule 40. Right, that's right. So during the period that started July 27th, if you're not an Olympic sponsor, you're forbidden from saying certain terms like Olympic or Rio or gold or, or metal. games. Right. <laughs> and so on July 26th, a lot of athletes who don't run for, say, Nike, which is an Olympic sponsor, they started thanking their sponsors. We saw Emma Coburn start that off by thanking New Balance, her sponsor. We saw Molly, Suttle, Molly Huddle thank Saucony. And a bunch of others um, did this. Jeremy Taiwo thanked Brooks. Um, it was, you know, just their last chance to say thank you to these companies that have, you know, supported their careers. But when they get to Rio, they'll be wearing a Nike uniform as part of Team USA. So what happens if a company like Wazell, which has spoken out about Rule 40 before and right now, if they did anything to support one of their athletes in this month period through the games, like what, what are the consequences? It's hard to say. The IOC is threatening that if your company, your sponsor, um, violates the Rule 40 regulations, then that runner, for instance, wouldn't be able to compete in the games. And that's a chance none of these mm -hmm. companies really want to take to see if they would actually enforce that. Okay, so Sarah, moving on to maybe a more uplifting type of story heading into the Olympics, which is what a lot of people you know, watch the Olympics for. Sarah Atar, she was the first female runner in the Olympics for Saudi Arabia back in 2012, she ran the 800. She just announced today, we're recording this on a Tuesday, that she is officially running the marathon for the country in Rio. Yes, yeah, Sarah Atar is a hugely inspirational figure for young girls in Saudi Arabia. Um, she'll be running the marathon, and she'll be, you know, covered up when she's doing it per the sort of Saudi traditions mm -hmm. of, you know, sort of modesty for women. And it's it's a great story to think that, you know, from a culture that doesn't really promote women's athletics too much, uh, not just Sarah, but they have three other Olympians this time, mm -hmm. double the number that they had from 2012. So they have a woman who's competing in the 100 meters, and then they have someone, a fencer and a judo athlete as well. And she's she's a dual citizen. She's from California. She was a walk-on track athlete at Pepperdine University. But, you know, she was kind of, like, picked to do this in 2012 and has trained to kind of get to this marathon in 2016 as well. Yeah, she grew up in Southern California. She has an American mom and a Saudi dad, which made her eligible for this. But she's been back to visit Saudi Arabia since her first Olympics. So what effect has Sarah Atar had in Saudi Arabia um, by doing these Olympic events? She, um, back in Riyadh, after she ran, she finished last in her heat in the 800 meters in 2012 and sort of didn't even register that the crowd noise there was for her and for what an historic moment this was. Back in Riyadh, um, an artist commemorated her race with a street poster. Mm -hmm. And when she went back to the country to visit, all the schoolgirls knew her and they loved her and they all want to be like her. They want to be an Olympian. Yeah, too. and that's, that's the point of all this. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so maybe to finish off the kick this week, Sarah, I feel like I lost a bet because at the news meeting last week when we were talking about this story, I said, no more beer miles on the website unless the record is shattered. And that happened this past weekend. Yes, let's just say it loud and clear. You lost the bet. I certainly lost this because Canadian Corey Belmore, he broke the record twice last week. So what was the existing record? So the existing record was an impressive 447.11. Wow. But even before he went to the Beer Mile World Classic, which was in London on July 31st, he, he broke the record on July 28th. He shaved eight seconds off the record, then just went ahead and kind of crushed the competition at London at the World Classic. He ran a 434 
35. So that's 13 seconds off the record in the span of a few days. Yikes. As some of the readers pointed out, I I don't think there's any way I could even drink four beers in four minutes and 34 seconds, let alone... It's like a superhuman skill to guzzle that much booze that quick. Right. And then to run. Although a few people pointed out that if you're running quickly, then the effect of the alcohol, the, the alcohol hasn't really taken effect yet. So, Brian, I guess this begs the question, do you think we'll ever see a sub-four-minute beer mile? It's kind of like the question on will we ever get to, like, a sub-two-hour marathon. You know, you have these great athletes out in the world, and just what are the limits of human consumption and speed? And that and that's exactly what we have with the beer mile. So, you know, if people are going to keep shattering records, I, I guess we're going to have to keep talking about it. Yeah, well, this guy is only 21 years old. I guess he's just getting started. Well, Sarah, thanks for joining us for the kick. You're going to be heading down to Rio soon, so we probably won't hear from you for a little bit, but please send us anything that, you know, you hear from athletes, you know, after their events or, you know, maybe an impromptu beer mile. (laughs) Absolutely, I will. That's it for this week's show. I'm Runner's World Editor-in-Chief David Willey. Please take a second and leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't already. It really makes a big difference. It helps us make the show better. It helps more people find and listen to the show. We really do appreciate it, and we really do read and care about all of your comments. The show was produced by Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. The Runners World Show is part of the Panoply Network. Please join us next week when we speak to Olympic marathoner Shalane Flanagan about running long in Rio and her latest accomplishment, an awesome cookbook. You will not want to miss it. Thanks for joining us.